Hello and welcome to Casual Crico. Hey everybody, I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. This is Casual Krakoa, where we are going to talk about the day's X-Men comics that came out today, Wednesday, April 6, 2022. Hey, if you are here on the live stream, first off, thank you so much for joining. Let me know in the comments here in the live chat if you can hear and see everything okay, and then we will go ahead and get started. Big week, huge week of X-Men comics, the biggest week of X-Men comics all year in terms of just pure release volume, right? We had four big comics that came out today, a lot going on. I see people piling into the stream here. Thanks so much for joining. Again, let me know if there's any issues with audio, video, etc., and we can dive right in. If you are here on the live stream, again, thanks so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Get in your questions, get in your thoughts. All that I ask is that you be respectful of those around you, and we'll have a nice time here hanging out and talking comics, okay? Um, does this channel do giveaways? I give away amazing thoughts <laughs> and analysis every week, every week. Um, uh, honestly, no, not really. Um, it's a thing that I've played with in the past as far as CBH strategy goes. Uh, but otherwise I don't know. Let me, that, I mean, I'd be curious, like what do other, what do other YouTube comics channels do in terms of giveaways? Um, and that sort of thing, like, what would that be if that's what you're here for? Uh, because I've got, uh, I've got hookups, I've got stuff, you know, I could, I could do some cool things. CBH is, you know, a thriving enterprise, right? Whatever they got, we can do it and we can do it 10 times better. It's not true, but <laughs> it might be true in very specific instances. So, all right, let's get into it. Let's talk comics. Again, today we had X-Men Red, number one. We had Marauders, number one. We had X-Force Annual, number one, and X-Force, number 27, not rebooting the series that launched with the Dawn of X. They're not giving them new number ones. Um, and while I have mixed feelings on the series that are actually carrying over, I'm very pro not renumbering those. <laughs> I'm good with that. I'm fine with that. Marauders does it because we got to turn over on the creative team. I actually think that kind of makes sense. Um, so I'm, I'm generally pro that. All right. But let's talk here. X-Men Red number one is definitely the biggest comic of these four. Uh, it's the most interesting. It's also the best. Uh, and then I, I think if I'm ranking today's comics, that's probably the order I'll talk about them, which is X-Men Red, Marauders, X-Force Annual, and then X-Force number 27. Although there's definitely a fair amount to talk about in all of these. There's nothing as big, there's nothing as major as what happened in Immortal X-Men number one. The Kieran Gillen written kickoff with Lucas Wernick on art last week, that definitely was the biggest of these. And I think that's pretty clearly, as anticipated, the centerpiece of this era of X-Men comics. You know, I was thinking about this today, right? We are now officially in the destiny of X, okay? This is the third era, the third branded era of X-Men comics, okay? Um, and it is the second age of Krakoa. These are all just <laughs> numbers and words. If you haven't been following along, that's fine. But we went after House of X and Powers of Ten, the big Hickman event that kicks off the Krakoa era. We go Dawn of X, Reign of X. We're now in the Destiny of X, okay? And the big question for me is like, okay, we're, we've got a handful of issues in this era now. We've got a handful, okay, of kickoffs. Very early, very early stages. But nonetheless, like, what is the Destiny of X going to be? Right? Like, what is the center? What is the hook? What is the meat of this era? You know, with Dawn of X, you had the Hickman X-Men, right? And you had the drive and the post-house powers establishing the nation. It was fairly clear what the hooks were. With the Reign of X, you had the potential 
for sort of the continuation of post Ten of Swords and 16 million mutants from Morocco. All these new mutants coming out of Ameth, right, joining the Earth. You had sword launching, okay, and the mutants taking to space. So you had this idea of mutant expansion was the key phrase there, right? That was the core of the reign of X. And then stagnation became the key phrase due to the pandemic, due to creative choices that we've talked about a bunch, right, etc. Destiny of X. Here we are. What is the actual key phrase, right? What is the actual hook and meat of the Destiny of X? And right now, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows, right? What was marketed, what was teased, circa Inferno, right? Hickman's final project in the line was these visuals, these tags of three different sort of versions of a future, right? Destiny's visions of like three possible futures. And we saw this for various characters. It looked very time travely, very alternate reality type stuff going on. Um, that's not actually in play here with any of these comics so far. Could we get there? Of course. Of course we can get there. Uh, but I'm really curious, like, are we actually doing that? Because I think we need a comic to tell us pretty quickly if we are. Because otherwise, the hook for Destiny of X right now is all about just post-Hickmanism, right? It's all about just, okay, there was a creative vision and there was House of X and then Inferno happened, but now just here's what comes next, right? And it's all just sort of like resetting, reestablishing Krakoa. Then Destiny of X, in a lot of ways becomes Dawn of X light, right? It becomes Diet Dawn of X. Um, and again, this is not a knock on the comics that have come out so far. The comics that have come out so far have been great to good, okay? Immortal X-Men was great. I loved it. If you were here last week for the conversation, if you saw the Cracking Krakoa video on the Comic Book Herald pod, you know that I loved it. X-Men Red is very good. I don't think it's as great as Immortal X-Men. It doesn't quite pack that punch, but it's very good. And it's, it's frankly great at what it's trying to do which is all just sort of character study relationship and building out a whole new mutant culture, which I've been wanting. I've been wanting badly, right? So there's, it's no knock on that. Um, but when I say Diet Dawn of X, I just mean like, well, we're just reestablishing what Krakoa is for new creators. And that could, that can run them up quickly. That can feel like a rehash. And that's the thing that, you know, what I'm curious, I think the real test will be kind of the next two months. I think, you know, this month, it's launch, right? It's launch month. Everything's coming out. Everything's new. Everything's fresh. We get some really interesting number ones. Plus, you know, if you're a comics reader, you know that like, okay, like it's a first issue. It's a pilot. Let's get to the meat. Let's get, let's keep this thing going. See how much they put their foot on the gas, right? Let's see how fast this thing moves. Let's see what really comes of these ideas. It's, it's very easy. It's not easy to write and make an amazing first issue, right? If it was, everyone would do it, but it's very easy to get more hyped about a first issue than say a second or third, right? Um, because everything's new. It's just the newness of it. It's the freshness of it. It's the potential. It's that unlimited sense of this could go anywhere. This could be amazing. And then it is or it isn't, right? Um, the next couple months will show us, I think in a lot of ways, how exciting this will actually be. <laughs> how good the Destiny of X will actually be as we get into issues two and three of stories set in this era, okay? Um, again, I have a very high degree of confidence for Mortal X-Men. I have a very high degree of confidence for X-Men Red, um, I'm pretty optimistic about Marauders after today. And I expect New Mutants to continue being very good as well, right? Uh, but, but you know, we need to see. We need to see these things move. And I, I really think establishing the center of the destiny of X, it doesn't have to be just full gung-ho, like, and Magneto's in three different alternate realities, right? It doesn't have to be that. But seeds, planting, building to suggest 
that that's what the destiny of X is going to be if it is in any way actually tied to the way it was marketed, you know, way back when, that I do want to see. That I really do want to see, okay? Uh, so that would be exciting. That would be exciting. We don't have that here. We don't have that through two weeks of launch issues. We do not have a clear, this is what the destiny of X is, right? I, I expect that if it's going to come from anywhere, it's going to come from Immortal X-Men, um, which again, I love that first issue. So absolutely, I'm willing to give it time. Okay, I'm willing to give it time. All right, so we're off to a pretty good start. X-Men Red, it's written by Al Ewing, art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Federico Blee, letters by Ariana Maher. Today, we also had uh, Marauders by Steve Orlando, art by Eleonora Carlini, colors by Matt Mello, letters by Ariana Maher again. And then we had the X-Force books, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, like I said, X-Men Red, Marauders were my two favorite issues of the week. I think, let's talk Marauders first, even though I said I go in order of my favorites. Let's talk about Marauders, because it is the sort of the newest of the bunch, right? X-Men Red is really just a continuation of S.W.O.R.D. You know, it's a continuation of what Al Ewing was already doing in the X-Office, where Steve Orlando here is new, right? He's to the X-Office, right? And in a lot of ways to Marvel. He's done some miniseries at this point, but Steve Orlando had been, you know, a DC person prior to this, um, wrote a really good Midnighter run, which I dug a lot, uh, had a run on JLA, right? Had a good Wonder Woman stretch. Like Steve Orlando's like, you know, he's been been doing good comics for quite some time. Has some really good creator-owned stuff as well. Um, uh, Commanders in Crisis from Image very recently, okay? So Orlando's a creator I trust as well. And Marauders, definitely, like this was a series that stagnated. It, it's maybe the biggest example of stagnation in the Reign of X. Like Marauders, Reign of X, you know, that circa, like all of it 2021. It's a book that went absolutely nowhere. It went absolutely nowhere. It was purely, you know, sort of an excuse to hang out and have fun with Jerry Duggan and Phil Noto and these characters that they clearly enjoyed, right? Um, but that book went absolutely nowhere. And and I was so jazzed about Marauders when it started in the Dawn of X. I thought the book was a blast. Um, and it really, really dried up. It dried up fast. So what Steve Orlando does is he comes in here and he reestablishes, and this, you know, some of this stuff happened in the annual that came out earlier this year. But he reestablishes like, okay, we're going to have a new crew to degrees. We're still going to have Kate Pride. We're going to have Bishop, um, but we're also going to have Cassandra Nova, right? There's a wild one. There's a big one. Now, this was teased by like in the marketing, so it wasn't a surprise that she's in the book. Um, nonetheless, this has been one of the biggest sort of where are they's in the entire Krakoa era. You know, Cassandra Nova, for all of the flack that Wanda Maximoff gets in these comics for Decimation, and for House of M, and for saying no more mutants, right? For all the flack that she gets as the great pretender, and sort of the villain of Krakoan culture, Cassandra Nova killed more mutants, right? In E.S. for Extermination, the first arc of Grant Morrison's new X-Men, Cassandra Nova, the sort of twin, <laughs> which is explained here, of Professor Charles Xavier, you know, he killed her in the womb, as so often happens, um, she exterminated, right? Like, what was it, 16 million mutants on, uh, on Genosha? Okay, including Kate Pride's dad, who is not a mutant, right? Just happened to be there, I think, if memory serves. Cassandra Nova's here. She's been on Krakoa. She's basically in timeout, okay? I, I don't know that we're actually going to get a ton of explanation on this. I hope that we do. Like, I hope that Orlando plays with this. I want to see Professor X and the Quiet Council having conversations about, like, hey, so we got to do something with Cassandra, um, we found a little nice beachfront property here that Krakoa, you know, kind of has hidden away from everyone else. Let's just put her on a hidden island, a hidden subsection of Krakoa this entire time. Like she's just been there digging up organs of Krakoa like, you know, Tom Hanks in Castaway meets 
some gross movie that I wouldn't watch because I'd be too scared. <laughs> right? Like, that's what she's been doing the entire time. Cassandra Nova has the potential to be, based on her previous actions, straight up the biggest villain in X-Men comics, like two mutant kind, okay? And it's determined here, and it is confirmed here, that Cassandra is also a mutant. Like, we are calling her also a mutant. This is the thing that, like, yes, you could debate this, you know, a la Mr. Sinister, and he's a part of the data page where they do debate it. Um, but, like, they're calling her a mutant, right? We're just going to count Cassandra as a mutant, accept it, roll with it. Cool, got it. But she's here, and that's a huge addition to this team, right? Adding a notorious, like, irredeemable villain as part of the Krakoan subplot, that is badly needed in Marauders, right? Pyro, God bless him, does not cover off on that base in terms of having, like, you know, just this absolute Machiavellian sinister villain on your team and on your crew. So that's that's a great addition to this team, which also has Ken, which is also going to have Somnus, a new creation by Steve Orlando. I think it uh, originated in um, uh, Marvel Voices Pride. And I believe, uh, who else do we got? We got Aurora, right? So we got a little X-Factor carryover from the Leah Williams written run. It's a good team, right? It's an interesting team. And on top of that, we're not just doing off the bat, we're not just going to do more sail around and see what happens threads, right? We're not going back to Madripoor, at least for now. They're going to space, okay? And they what Cape Pride found at the end of Marauders Annual earlier this year was a box of Mysterium, which is that, like, you know, cosmic metal, right? This extremely valuable substance. And it was a letter from herself, but it's, like, billions of years old or something. Maybe millions. I don't understand time. <laughs> okay? It's very old, but it's from herself, right? It's a message in a bottle kind of thing. Um, and it's got clues about trying to discover the first generation of mutants. I love this. I love that Orlando's playing with this, okay? This is something that... Hickman teased out in X-Men. It comes up a lot, I think, Circa Tennis Swords, um, and didn't really do anything with, but there was this idea that uh, Apocalypse and the mutants now of Amanth, right, mutants of Araco that we know, that they're the second generation of mutants, okay? So, like, you know, they're always often referred to as the oldest mutants. Well, they're the second generation. So what happened to the first? Okay, that's the question that Kate and the Marauders and crew are ostensibly setting out to find answers to. I actually find that really interesting. Like mutant culture, the idea of mutant history, the idea that there have been mutants for centuries upon centuries, well before Apocalypse, is fascinating to me. I mean, surely. Um, I, I'm really interested in that idea and in the potential of that. And then what Orlando does here, which is going to be pretty fun as well, is he ties this secret to the Shi'ar. Okay, and on the throne of the Shi'ar, who we've seen a handful you know, times throughout this era, um, is, uh, Zandra, the, the, let's just call her daughter of Professor X and Landra. And of course you got the Imperial Guard, which we're all familiar with. And then Orlando also does some stuff here, sort of expanding the Eric the Red mythos <laughs> to include like a whole Star Wars Palpatine-esque, what do they call those? The Crimson Guard? Something like that, right? The, the cool guys in red costumes that have shown up now in, in lots of non-canon movie stuff. Um, or non-movie stuff, right? It's all really good. Like, it's all it's all pretty interesting. It's a good first issue. It lays out its premise. It gives you a feel for how this series is going to be different and how it's going to be exciting. And I am hopeful and semi-optimistic that it can pull it off. You know? 
Um, I, I'm really interested in like, what is this year secret? What do they know about the first mutants? Who are the first mutants? Um, I, I want this to actually have depth and weight and, and play out over time, you know? Uh, so yeah, so I thought it was a good launch to Marauders. Um, again, I, I, I didn't feel knocked back on my socks. Like it was incredible by it necessarily. Um, but as I talk about it, you know, I, I think maybe there was a, I'm trying to think of like what it, what are my actual criticisms here? I don't know. There's just sort of like battles in space and people getting knocked about and having conversations uh, that with with little import about what's happening. You know, a few too many pages like that. Essentially, um, I, I think the bigger reveals, you know, the bigger swings have to come down the line. You know, because the reveal here is just that the first mutants are out there and the Shi'ar know something about it, but we don't really get much more than that. You know, but there's a lot of meat on the bone. There's a lot of meat on the bone, and I am optimistic that it can continue to be good. And again, if you're just looking at it in terms of, okay, what's it doing differently from the previous iteration of Marauders? It's a huge step in the right direction. It's a huge level up from what was coming out in Marauders prior to this point. Um, so I do, I, it's going to need to get a lot deeper and it's going to need to be pretty clever. But again, like that's, you know, that's what a first issue is supposed to do is to set up that potential. And I think it does so here pretty well. Okay. So Get in your questions, get in your thoughts about Marauders or any of these comics, really. Again, the Super Chat is open. I saw one earlier from Cole. Thanks so much for your support. Really, really appreciate it. Um, I will prioritize those. Again, if you have questions, things you want to get, um, you know, addressed here in, in the chat, definitely get them in. And as I'm talking, I will try to grab a handful of these uh, as I can and as I see and then they look interesting. So X-Men Red, again, my favorite issue of the week. Not surprising. I thought X-Men Red was... Okay, it was really good. It was not as good as Sword Number One, okay, which was the other Al Ewing's launch, um, you know, at the start of the Reign of X, which I thought was like one of the best number one issues of this entire era, okay. I, I didn't think it was actually that good, and I kind of had my expectations insanely high to the point that I was like mildly let down. Um, this is pretty unfair <laughs> to the issue, which again, as I said, is really flipping good, okay. Um, but it didn't quite blow me away. And I think part of that is just the nature of the story here. It is very psychological. It is very character focused. Um, it's got a lot of spinning plates. We're dealing with a lot of different characters and sort of their relationship and discovery here of Araco culture. Again, Araco culture is a thing. Okay. You've got these 16 million mutants that used to hang with apocalypse and then they were named battling demons and now they're here. Okay, and we, we mutants put them on Mars um, after they uh, terraformed it and made it habitable. Okay, because ba basically it was that or the Arachimians were eventually going to go to war <laughs> with like all the humans. You know, that's part of it. Okay, we don't know a lot about these people, right? We've, we've, met, we've met some of them and they're all mutants or more or less as we'll get to, right? You have Iska the Unbeaten, right? Mutant power is to never be beaten, which is great. You've got all these others on the Great Ring, you like Tarn the Uncaring. You know, we've seen a fair amount in, in Hellions, you know, sort of this even more sinister Mr. Sinister type character. Um, but otherwise, we don't know a lot about these people. There's a great line here from this new character, the Fisher King, who says uh, to Magneto, who shows up here, Euchre Cohen's think a lot about us and know a little, right? They're thinking about Araku all the time. We're talking about Araku all the time. We don't actually know much at all. And this has been something I've been pushing for for like a year and a half now since Ten of Swords, is I wanted a Hickman-written new X-Men book that was all Araka mutants. Like, like Ten of Swords 
I think had a pretty mixed reception at the time. I was pretty pro the big beats in the moments, but in retrospect, it's still like the legacy of that book is really great. Like it's, it leaves so much potential for X-Men comics to be fun and exciting and feel fresh and new again, not the least of which is, again, this entirely new, warring mutant culture that is now on planet Araco, a.k.a. Mars, a.k.a. the capital of the soul system. Like, that's super cool comic book stuff, okay? That's really, really fun. And Ten of Swords left that to us, you know? Like, that was part of the part of the legacy of that event. But again, like, since that time, I've been like, where's the book that's going to dig into this? And there have been all these sort of half measures and half steps, you know, little characters showing up with with roles to play, right? You had a little bit in Wolverine. You had a little bit in Sword, okay? Maybe a little bit more. And now Al Ewing seems to be more fully devoting to like, okay, what's going on on Mars? This is the Mars book, right? It's X-Men Red. It's a pun, right? It's the Red Planet, uh, which great, good, love it. Uh, it's it's Storm has been on the Great Ring for a bit. You know, if you've been reading Sword prior to this, that that's the other thing about X-Men Red that is not a hindrance to me, but I do think is something that maybe was poorly managed here, which is X-Men Red is heavily, <laughs> like, like heavily indebted to series that came previously, right? Like, like for a number one issue, you know, uh, how much sense does this make somebody if they didn't read any of Sword? And this is a genuine question. I don't know. I don't have this experience. Um, but there's also just a ton, and like L. Ewing's great at this, right? I've talked about this a bunch, like, the king of continuity right now is Al Ewing. Jeb McKay's making a run. Okay, he's doing some really fun stuff in Moon Knight as well and other titles. But like Al Ewing nods and winks to continuity constantly. Has all this history built in. And it's part of what makes the character interactions in this book so good. Okay, is he's playing with like, if you've been playing along the whole time, if you've read your X-Men comics to this point, these interactions mean a lot more than the surface level like bar fight. Right? Like Cable saying you missed your flight to Thunderbird if you know the story of Giant Size X-Men and the start of Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum's run in Uncanny X-Men, that means a lot more. That's how Thunderbird died, was was jumping onto a plane to take out Continuferia. Okay? So he's doing this a bunch. And one thing I noted was like, you know, in and, and Marvel still does this, weirdly, but they don't do it in the X-Office, or at least on this comic. Um, you know, just little editor's notes, little asterisks. Being like, and this is what they're talking about. There's just a lot of moments like that in this comic. And like, I know that's like what some of you come to me for, <laughs> right? So like, that's great for me. I can I can talk here about what the reference points are. I can talk about why Vulcan's behaving like a madman <laughs> when it comes to, uh, to cosmic, you know, political alliances and things like that. Because that feels kind of out of the blue if you don't know your history. Um, so again, like, I don't think it's a hindrance. I don't want Al Ewing to write any other way. I love that he does this stuff. I just think it's all kind of dropped in uh, without a lot of context. And again, I don't want it to be more handholdy. You know, every Marvel comic from from 1961 to I don't even know when it stops. Let's say 1989 is it like has a page of X or maybe it's probably like through the Jim Shooter era, you know, where it's really taking to heart this idea that like every comic can be someone's first. Okay? And it will have an entire page, maybe 2-3 of exposition catching you up. I do not want that to come back to comics. <laughs> that is not what I'm asking for. Um, but I am really curious for readers who are maybe newer, who don't know all the history. Like, I feel like X-Men Red is very referential in ways that maybe could be a challenge. But anyway, back to the point. 
here, you know, the core cast, Storm, Magneto, Sunspot, Thunderbird, Abigail Brand, Cable, and Vulcan. We've got, and then again, like the entire culture of Araco. Giving attention to the Araco mutants is the best thing that could happen for this book. I hope it continues to lean into that. Um, I, I think like actually exploring like, hey, these are people and they have names. And what is their culture? Because we don't actually know. Um, this is great stuff and it has amazing, amazing potential. So I'm I'm very excited about it in that regard. I think, you know, here we've got Magneto showing up after Inferno, after we saw him leave the Quiet Council in Immortal X-Men. Magneto feels done, you know? Magneto feels completely done after the failure of Moira and, and Charles and Krakoa. And he says here to this Fisher King new character, if they see me as a fool, as a failure, what can I say to that? What can I say to the truth? Like, this is as close to beaten Magneto as we will ever see. And much like you might have seen with, like, Lee Forrester, you know, back in the Uncanny X-Men days, when he retreats to his uh, Bermuda Fortress, you know, the one with all the squids, um, he goes to Araco. And he's like, hey, I'm just going to hang with my Fisher King bro and build a new palace out of metal. And I'm just going to stay here away from everyone because I am a failure now. That's an interesting place to put Magneto, right? Who through this era, obviously, has been all-time high confidence. And this is a confident dude, you know? But like he knew the plan and he knew the plan that nobody knew. And it's fallen apart now. So it's a really interesting place to catch Magneto, I think. It's a really interesting place to catch Storm. Again, she is um, uh, has earned through combat, the regent of Mars status. Everyone's calling her queen here, you know, basically saying like, hey, you stepped in and took over and made yourself queen. And Storm's very resistant to that. And now Jung's doing a lot of really interesting character work as to like, why would Storm be resistant to that? Like she's been hailed as a queen before, you know, like, like on Wakanda, right? She's been hailed as a goddess where she's from in Kenya. So like, why does she, why is she insisting on being a regent here? You know, she literally destroys a throne with lightning here to remove the possibility, the temptation of being the actual queen of Mars, you know, being the mutant queen of space. She doesn't actually want that. I think the idea is she wants to actually be a part of this culture or to be seen as a part of this culture. And again, like more broadly, the culture I think they want to establish here is mutant. But I think the difference, the challenge is you have Krakoan culture of mutants and you have Iraqan culture of mutants. And there is a danger with Krakoa being the ones sort of in control, you know, and, and having the assets and having Terraform Mars to be like, well, if you want to be a part of mutant culture, that means you have to be a part of our mutant culture. And that's where the talk from Brand of colonizing the planet, of colonizing the Iraqan culture, and Storm rejecting that, that's where I think that parallel and that mutant metaphor is pretty effective, right? Because that, that would pretty clearly be Krakoan mutants stepping in and telling, again, like, not for nothing, this potential trope of, quote-unquote, savage warlike people, of like, oh, here's how you should really live, civilized, you know? And I think Ewing's showing in this issue, he's smart enough to see that, he's smart enough to see ways around that, and and to do something better, you know? And and Storm's a great lead for that, because she is somebody who would, who would get that, and would potentially look for a different different option. You know, one of the most interesting things here, I think with the end of X-Men Red is, so at one point you have Abigail Brand, who again, leading S.W.O.R.D., uh, we also know by the end of S.W.O.R.D. to be a traitor, if not like a triple agent. 
right? Like Abigail Brand is playing all sides right now in that she's still running sword for mutant kind, but she is also um, a part of Orcus. Like she's one of the heads of Orcus, which is the human organization that is, you know, looking to prevent mutant takeover essentially. But that also means killing lots of mutants potentially. Um, so Abigail Brand's playing all sides. We don't know which way she's leaning, what she's actually doing, but we know that she can't be trusted. Okay. Um, she's doing her own thing and she's, she's got the galaxy at heart. You know, she's kind of doing a Nick Fury, but bigger and cooler, <laughs> you know? Um, and she goes to Storm at one point and is basically like, Hey, I've got an idea. How about you make some X-Men? Make a good old X-Men team and basically like police the Iraqo nation. Uh, and Storm rejects that idea. She doesn't want to do that. So she turns, by the end of this, comes to Sunspot, who's hanging out with Magneto and the Fisher King, and she's like, I have a better idea, and this is where Al Ewing drops, of course, the historically very potent reference of Let's Make a Brotherhood. This, of course, being a reference to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants that Magneto, um, you know, kicks off in Uncanny X-Men number four, I believe it is, by Stanley and Jack Kirby. I, this is a cool drop, for sure, right? Like, it's a really cool moment. Storm shows up, looking awesome, says the word Brotherhood, hell yeah, right? Super fun X-Men stuff. I don't actually know what that means, <laughs> right? So, like, the X-Men are the heroes of a planet, or that's how they see themselves. Um, the Brotherhood, historically, have been, you know, the villains, right, of the X-Men stories. But, but more specifically, like, to what Magneto would have been doing with them, you know, they were looking to destroy humanity or destroy elements of humanity to get equal rights, not equal rights, to get mutant supremacy, right, on top. Um, and I don't totally know what that means in the context of, like, Iraqo culture. Uh, that said, I'm sure this series will go on to explain that. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a danger of, like, we're going to call it a brotherhood, and then basically they're just X-Men, you know? And it's sort of like, well, what are, what are we actually doing here? But I'm hoping there's something clever and there's a plan. Um, because otherwise, I don't know, <laughs> like, what that word actually means. Uh, but there's, and, like, you know, I'm talking about this, there's so much cool stuff to talk about in this because, like, I mean, probably, like, four characters get their due. Probably five, really, in this issue, you know? Um, many get good little small moments. Like, like you've got a Storm, you know, thread. You've got a Magneto thread. You've got a little Abigail Brand. You've got a little Thunderbird. You've got uh, a fair amount of Vulcan. And then you got Sunspot, an Al Ewing favorite. I mean, everybody thinks of, of Sunspot as a Hickman favorite, because he likes writing Sunspot and Cannonball as these bro-y friends. Um, Al Ewing's done better work <laughs> with Sunspot in his uh, not super well-read New Avengers and U.S. Avengers runs. I'm not like head over heels over those. I actually think Ewing's Avengers stuff is probably his weakest at Marvel. Um, that said, he writes a good Sunspot. He knows how to write this character. He writes him more strategic. He writes him more focused than I think Hickman does, where he played him almost entirely for comedy. Uh, and I do like that version of the character quite a bit more, I have to say. So, again, there's a lot of meat on bone. Um, I'm going to take a sip of water. I'm also going to say thanks so much to Fussy Rossi here for the super chat. And uh, get in some questions, get in some thoughts. And I am going to take a drink. And then we're going to talk about Vulcan. Okay. Uh, Vulcan shows up here, walks into a bar. A Vulcan walks into a bar, and uh, he does not want to live long and prosper. He wants to fight everyone that he sees. And he's going straight 
straight into the Emperor Vulcan mode. Okay, goes into the Red Lagoon, and he is all Emperor Vulcan on us. Um, Hickman kind of skipped this. Hickman did some weird Vulcan stuff, and I can't imagine Al Ewing won't pick it back up. I'd be shocked if he didn't, right? And I think that's going to play into this. Um, but he kind of skipped over the part where, like, Vulcan is revealed to be alive in Deadly Genesis, hates the X-Men, hates Professor X for leaving him and his friends to die on Krakoa originally, then goes into space, becomes Emperor of the Shi'ar, and does that for a while <laughs> through War of Kings, um, leading just a brutal Shi'ar era until he is left for dead after a fight with Black Bolt, King of the Inhumans, and the Kree at that point, um, in, in this negative zone space, right? And then, of course, we've got this mystery as to, like, okay, he never died. Um, what does that actually mean? Who was he rescued by? Was it people in the cancer? Was it these beings in the cancerverse? What did they put inside him? There's all this interesting stuff left on the table that Hickman left there. And again, I think he was going to pick it up. That seems to be coming to the surface, right? Getting Vulcan into space, um, bringing him closer to the Shi'ar or anyone who might be in contact with them seems to be bringing full Emperor Vulcan back to the surface. Obviously, he's referencing here you know, the data page from one of the Hickman mystery chapters, which was he never died. Vulcan keeps saying that. And it's like, okay, so he seems to know that now. He seems to remember that about himself. There's a really interesting reference here. Um, I think Cable said to to Brand that, like, or maybe it's to Sunspot. He's like, you know, because he's like, what's Vulcan's deal? Um, he's like, oh, he's like, don't even ask about what happened to Petra and Sway. Hickman revealed in an interview with Jay and Miles explaining the X-Men that, um, that Petra and Spey initially were supposed to be entirely in Vulcan's head. That, like, he was supposed to be um, six-sensing them. But there was an error in printing where someone else, I think Havoc, referred to them. And it kind of screwed it up. I wonder if he was just going to bring it back. Honestly, and frankly, you could. Because, like, aside from, like, uber ex-continuity nerds, you know, I think the story still works. Um, and, and basically, you could just have it, what Cable's referring to, be there, like, yeah, he thought Petra and Sway were around him all the time, and they weren't real. So every time he was passed out with 35 beer cans and drinks around him in Summer's house, he was alone doing that. Like, he thought he was having a party with two women. It was just him every time. Um, how did that look to the Summers? They seem to have maybe kicked him out of Summer's house. We don't know at this point. Uh, so the whole Vulcan mystery and the next issue seems to be concentrated on that is a great opportunity to explore one of the bigger threads and one of the weirder threads that Hickman left behind. So I'm very excited to see that play out, you know? Um, but again, that's just one of the many interesting things going on here. You know, Storm's having these Shakespearean struggles as to whether or not she'll be Queen of Mars. Um, you know, you've got Abigail Brand scheming. We still have, just in the data pages, of like, okay, here's who's on the Great Ring. Let's get familiar with those characters, because most of them we haven't had much interaction with right? We still have these secret night seats on the Great Ring. There's three seats of individuals that, like, are secret. They never come out. They don't vote. So whereas, like, the Quiet Council on Krakoa has 12 people, the Great Ring has, I think, 12 as well, but three of them are secret. <laughs> the night seats, we still don't know who they are, okay? That's so, like, there's all this mystery to this, this culture that we don't know about. Um, and they, we do have a vote here with the Great Ring. They're voting like, hey, should we just go back to Amenth and go to war with Apocalypse and Genesis and all them? Or should we stay on planet Araco? And ultimately they vote 
I think, you know, there's no suspense in this, but it shows how everyone's thinking in terms of they vote to stay on planet Araka and, and build a new life. Um, but yeah, I mean, X-Men Red's really good. It's really, really good. I think the series will continue to be good. Um, if you've dug out Ewing stuff to this point, again, like I would say, like you really have to have read Sword, I think, to fully have a handle on what's happening here. And then obviously there's like a lot of X history that's already come in. I think there's going to continue to be X history and lore that comes up. Um, but some of that stuff, you know, you can get by with, right? Like, okay, Vulcan's acting like a weirdo. Maybe you've never read Emperor Vulcan, but uh, you've seen weirdos before. <laughs> like, you're good. You got it. Okay. Um, so there's, there's plenty you'll be able to pick up. Uh, but yeah, it's good stuff. It's really good stuff. Uh, X-Men Red, not as good as Immortal X-Men. Not as good for me as Sword Number 1. But but still pretty good. You know, I do feel a little disappointed in the sense that, like, okay, so, like, X-Men Red is a continuation of valuing Sword, right? So it's not like we lost the creator. It's not like they're not going to be playing with a lot of the same characters. But I did really like Sword. And, like, that book seems to be gone. You know? Like, like X-Men Red is not just Sword 2.0. You know? Like, it builds to it. Um, and I'm sure we'll see... Bran and Cable on the peak doing sword stuff, right? And WizKid's going to come back. You know, there's no way he doesn't. But I would have liked to have seen that. Like, I feel like there was more to do with the actual, like, the sword business of the mutant place in society is still really interesting to me. You know, like, like how mutants are considered by other spacefaring races in the Marvel Universe, kind of where they fit into the Marvel cosmic landscape. Um, all that stuff's really interesting to me. So I hope that also continues to come up in X-Men Red. Uh, but again, it's one of those things where it's like, how many plates can you spin? <laughs> you know, um, how much can this book do being the only cosmic set of books in this entire line, you know? So it, it'll be a trick. It'll be a trick. I do hope there's more to it though, because that stuff's fun. I like that stuff a lot. All right. I'm seeing a super chat here from Marks. Thanks so much for your support. Love it. All right. Uh, the other books we had today were X-Force uh, Annual and X-Force number 27. And I'm seeing the seeing the, the thought here before I get into those, which I really dig. Um, they should have started with the one-shot of Destiny explaining why we should trust her. A Destiny one-shot would have been a really cool start to this era. I'm very pro that. I'm very pro that. You know, I've said this a bunch, but one of the things I'm most excited about in Immortal X-Men is, is Karen Gillan giving destiny her due right and really building out who is this character why is she so interesting why she's so powerful etc um a one shot with like destiny's visions and these three possible outcomes that would have been great framing great framing for what this era is supposed to be about good thought i dig it i dig it okay so the x4 stuff was the stuff i was the least into uh i i did like the annual a bit uh, we had writer Nadia Shamas, who's new to the X-Men universe here, just wrote um, a really good graphic novel, Squire, which uh, I'm going to be interviewing her about, actually, in a, not too long. Um, that's that's one of the more interesting books of the year. Uh, but this X-Force Annual is her first time writing in the X-Men office. We got art by Rafael Pimentel, colors by Carlos Lopez, letters Joe Caramagna. The good stuff about the annual is just Emma Frost continuing to have it out with Beast. That's great. So Emma caught Beast in the act, you know, at the Hellfire Gala. And is clearly on to the fact that he's running an insane, <laughs> an insanely ethics-free uh, mutant CIA, you know? And I was like, okay, this is going to come back to bite us. 
right? This is going to be bad for me personally <laughs> if Beast continues to operate unchecked like this. Um, Beast, through this issue, through X-Force number 27, just new depths of awful with Beast. I mean, just like, I, you know, for the longest time, I was like, okay, um, you know, Beast is, he's been bad for a while now. And I think we actually can isolate it too. Like everything after Decimation is Beast just sinking further and further down a rabbit hole of trying to help and save mutant kind and just losing himself further and further in the process. And I've talked a lot about how, okay, that build's been happening over time. X-Force isn't the first to do it. It's not like character assassination. It's just a continuation of the arc this character has been on for the last, you know, almost 20 years. It's It's gone on a long time now, man. <laughs> like, it's been going on for a long time, and he just keeps getting worse and worse. And, like, I know that's kind of the point. And there's this, again, with Emma coming to him and, and watching him directly in the annual, it's like, okay, there's at least some sign of repercussion or of, of anyone doing anything about Beast. But, like, when they tease the pages from X-Force 27 of Beast walking to the Quiet Council, everyone's reaction on social was, oh, good, he's finally going to get held accountable and maybe thrown in the pit for his actions. And of course, it's not that. They're just taking advice from him on what to do about Omega Red. And his advice is the worst. <laughs> like, Beast is, like, just immediate, like, he goes to, first off, he leaves out a ton of stuff, relevant details. Then he goes straight to, okay, and on this mutant paradise, where every mutant is welcome, not only should we not bring Omega Red back, not only should we maybe throw him in the pit or something, we should delete his data so Omega Red can never be brought back. Like, that's the worst thing a mutant can suggest right now. You know? Like, that is that is the, the you know, the death penalty for a mutant on a deathless nation. Like, it's a crazy thing to propose in earnest. You know, the only other time we've seen it is with Moira and Destiny as part of the super secret plan, you know, and it being for the sake of all of mutant kind, or so it was pitched by Moira, you know, so so thank goodness for for Sage walking in here, and obviously being this increasingly super essential uh, counter threat to Beast run amok. Um, but Beast Beast gone too far down down the road. Like I am every issue now. I'm like, please let there be a Dark Beast reveal at the end of this issue. And initially, I thought that would have been kind of hacky. At this point, I don't care. I just, <laughs> like, like somebody rescue Beast or throw him in the pit or something. Like, holy cow. I, I mean, I do have to say, Beast and Abigail Brand, romantically linked yet again here in the pages of X-Force. That dates back to um, the Astonishing X-Men run by Joss Whedon and John Cassidy. Whedon's so hot these days. So hot. <laughs> that that's back uh them together scheming is good like they work well as antagonists i think for krakoa um for being sort of the ultra pragmatism run amok you know uh i i do think as a pairing that is interesting again given the power given the placement that they have in these societies that is interesting okay um yes i know dark beast was killed uh by magic um, as was everyone by Matt Rosenberg <laughs> before Hawksbox. It's Krakoa. Everybody comes back. Everybody comes back. I'm not worried about good old Dark Beast. Like, here's the thing. If Dark Beast showed up, like, if they were like, hey, we just resurrected Dark Beast. What do you think, Hank? 
Dark Beast would be behaving more ethically than this beast. <laughs> like, like that Dark Beast would be more redeemable than this version of Beast. No question about it. <laughs> like, I just, I don't think there's any question about it at this point. You know, Beast is, Beast is gone. If you like Beast at any point in time, um, listen, we'll always have the past. We'll always have the past, but, uh, but we do not have our bouncing blue boy anymore. Um, so, all right. So what's the other interesting stuff that happens here? Uh, Orcus continues, you know, toying and testing on X-Force squad. I mean, between this, between Inferno, like Orcus must have a ton of data specifically on the X-Force squad who keep throwing themselves into missions, uh, basically suicide missions, you know, like they must know like as much as there is to know about Wolverine, Kid Omega, Domino, etc. And I do think here, Orcus setting up, you know, an arcade-esque sort of um, killing trap for Wolverine, Domino, and Kid Omega, that plays out pretty fun, actually. Like, that plays out pretty well. Um, and, and then interspersed with the conversations between Emma Frost and Beast, uh, it's good stuff. I like the annual. Again, the actual X-Force issue itself. Um, listen, if you've been in on the Ben Percy ride to this point in X-Force, you're going to continue to be in on it. If you haven't, nothing changed. <laughs> it's the same book. Um, it, it is absolutely the same book. It briefly references the, as they say in the editor's note, now classic <laughs> X lives of Wolverine. It's been one hot week, two hot weeks. Uh, it is already classic. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like it's fast. I would argue. Um, but there's like one brief reference to that just in terms of Wolverine doing his patented Ben Percy tough guy monologue. Uh, but you know, other than that, like X lives and X deaths do not really matter um, or come up in these comics. Uh, th the wildest, probably, mo I guess actually the best thing about X-Force is Black Tom refers to Forge as Quad Squad, <laughs> which is incredible as a pet name for someone with large quads. I'm going to start using that for sure. Uh, so I did love that. Um, there's also the last page revealed that one of the Cerebro helmets got up and walked away and is killing people. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> That's pretty out there. As turns go, no idea what's going on there with a walking, killing Cerebro helmet. Um, I think maybe the implication is because this thing and the Cerebro sword were used to send Omega Red back in time, you know, it kind of looked like this thing was walking around on Omega Red-esque tentacles, you know? Like, it, they, like they, they've been somehow Omega Red or some part of Omega Red has been left behind in Cerebro. Uh, that's my guess because we just played with that in X Lives of Wolverine. But if that's actually it or not, obviously there's plenty of time, plenty of time to see if that's right. So, okay. But yeah, I mean, that's that's really all I have to say about X-Force Annual and X-Force. Um, nothing too exciting. I mean, I, I think the thing with X-Force is like, again, this is the Destiny of X. This is a new era. The books that have been running and the creators that have been here uh, it is important that they show up and sort of, again, restate the purpose, restate what the focus is. I don't think X-Force does that super well. You know, um, again, I think the best thing it does is is decidedly bringing Brand and Beast back together again to to have sort of this pairing, again, of all these, these power players and these uber, you know, ethics and morals are besides the point pragmatists. Uh, but otherwise, it's like, I mean, this is kind of the knock I've had on Percy through a bunch of stuff, including the Wolverine event, where it's just like, you're just continuing this really long game without enough payoff, you know? And it's just kind of stretching and stretching and stretching, and it's too thin at this point. 
Uh, so yeah, I'm not super jazzed about X-Force, but you know, there's interesting stuff. Interesting stuff, and we'll always have Quad Squad. All right, I saw a couple chats come in um, with good questions here. Let's make sure I try to get to them. On the second Hellfire Gala, should the champions be invited? Because Cyclops is friends with them, and he did protect them and outlawed. Uh, sure, invite the champions. Yeah, why not? I mean, I guess the argument why not would be generally 14, 15-year-olds aren't invited to galas with alcohol. <laughs> so actually, in that regard, maybe don't. Maybe don't. Um, I, I don't think it's a kid-friendly event. That said, if you treat the gala more like a wedding, then sure. Sure, invite the champions. But I don't, I don't think you would. <laughs> so like that would be the only reason not to otherwise yeah i always I always love it when cyclops turns out to be hey remember that time i was a teen and i was pals with uh with you kids that's, that's fun stuff um let's see what was the other question that came in here okay let's see if i can parse this out it said that lago Ooh. <laughs> uh but the gist of it is there's a there's a mutant on Araco. Uh, his powers to create metal. Will Magneto take his seat on the ring? Um, that would be kind of interesting to give another seat to Ikrakoa Mutant. Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, Magneto's not going to stay down in the dumps forever, right? Like, that's just not his character. He will bounce back, get his mojo back. Uh, will he then fight someone for a place on the Great Ring? It's an interesting theory. Um, I could see it. I'm not anticipating it in the near future because I do actually think you need him away from the politics and the leadership of it for a minute. And I actually think that version of, you know, as he calls himself here, Max, uh, it will be very fun to read about, uh, and, and has a lot of merit, but eventually could he take a place on the great ring? Yeah. I mean, I think like as Araco culture gets more and more established, you know, in this era, I think one of the best things they can do is, have the sort of politicking that has been going on on the Quiet Council on Krakoa, right? Like spend some time changing out who's going to be sitting there, who's playing different roles, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and I think all that can be pretty effective. Um, all right, get in some other questions here because otherwise I think I am out of stuff. So let's see what questions you got, any topics, otherwise we can call it a day. I'm enjoying the combination here of what about the Inhumans? They are royals and are related to Magneto, followed by I never want to see an Inhuman in the next book again. <laughs> Fair. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it's always funny to me anytime the Inhumans come back up um, in any context, frankly. But uh, no, they will not be coming into X-Men books anytime soon. Um, they aren't even in the Marvel Universe in any real way right now. So, I mean, I think that's that's on the back burner. That one's on the back burner. Um, I don't even know what that... I, I feel like the best thing you could do for the Inhumans, and I'm rarely the advocate for this, but would actually be like a back-to-basics kind of thing of just like, hey, we're in the Fantastic Four book again, and we've got a cool place, we've got a cool house on the moon, and you see us occasionally. <laughs> like, that would actually... Because they've been through so much weird stuff you know, and everyone, like, like if you're gonna just lean into, I mean, my favorite Inhumans comic of all time is the Paul Jenkins, Jai Lee stuff from the early Marvel Knights days. And that just fully dives into, like, how I'm talking about here with Rocco and, and Al Ewing, where it's like, what is Inhumans culture? What is it like 
inside the walls of Adelon. Um, I think instead of trying to rejuvenate them with like a wild new idea, like just do that. Like just just get back to like where they live and where they're taking care of themselves. Um, but yeah, I'm not I'm not looking for them to jump into X Men books anytime soon. Um, who would save the world faster, X Men vs Beyonder or Avengers vs Nimrod and Orcus? Uh, definitely Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> not because I like the Avengers more than the X-Men or anything, but because the Beyonder is all powerful and like totally unstoppable. The only person to ever beat the Beyonder was Dr. Doom and pooping. So unless the X-Men have, I mean, the X-Men have worked with Dr. Doom um, semi-recently, right? So it's possible. It's possible. But yeah, I mean, the Beyonder's Beyonder's going to win anything. Um, who do you think Bram will pick to be on the roster of her X-Men Red? Well, Cable, Vulcan, Thunderbird? Maybe? Where's where's Thunderbird going in all this? I feel like he'll be with the Brotherhood, actually. Probably not. Um, who else we got? I mean, I don't know. Maybe some Morocco mutants, that sort of thing. Talk them into it. Uh, that is a good question. That is a good question. All right, who else we got? I've been reading Royals by Al Ewing, and it's really good. Yeah, like, Al Ewing's written... Good in human stuff. That Royal series is actually pretty underrated. Um, yeah, I mean they're they're good. In, like all of Hickman's in human stuff and Fantastic Four is really good. Um, what other inhuman stuff do I like? Those are probably the big ones. I'm thinking about it. Um, I didn't care for Donny Cates' death of the Inhumans. That wasn't very good. Uh, there was oh Black Bolt by Solid and It's awesome. It's great in humans book. Um, yeah, there's plenty of good human stuff. All right, let's see. Avengers failed against the Beyonders. Everyone failed. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We got the Beyonder, White Suit, Jerry Curl, and then we got the Beyonders, Vague Cosmic Hickman Concept slash Stand In for Editorial. Okay, we got we got two different entities here, um, and nobody's beaten either of them. Uh, is it just me or Thunderbird gave a massive Old Days Magneto vibes? Uh, I mean, kind of. I mean, the thing with Thunderbird is he's only been back for a minute, he doesn't have any of the lived experience of any of these mutants, right? So for Thunderbird, like, he showed up. He was super brash. Um, he was real and, like, you know, wanted to fight everybody kind of on the X-Men when he showed up. He was wrong for two issues, and then Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum killed him on a plane. So, like, yeah, he would continue to be angry <laughs> and not like anyone. And now he's trying to learn everything that's happened ever since. Um, so very, a very different character than Magneto, you know? Like, like he joined the X-Men. Like, he was trying to, like do good right and, and and help um but definitely doesn't like the summers or or any of these old-timey x-men so it'll be interesting to see what what he can do here um what else we got do you think big daddy apocalypse will be back before x aka avengers x-men eternals he's one of the few to interact with the celestials like the eternals that is a good point that's a really good point um and Apocalypse's Eternals ties makes him incredibly interesting to me. I would kind of like that. I would kind of like that, but here's... The, I mean, this could get this could get really interesting. If you get Apocalypse back... First off, no, I don't. I don't think he'll be back that fast. Just off the top of my head, I don't think he will. But if you get him back with the Mutants of Aemoth, with Genesis and all that, now you've got an event with Apocalypse playing a key role and Thanos and Celestials. That's a big event. That is a big, big event. Um, have Apocalypse and Thanos ever met? I don't think that's ever happened in the pages of comics before. 
Uh, interesting idea, interesting idea. I could dig it. Let's see. Who would you add to the X-Forces team to make the book better? I don't think the challenges of X-Force are team-based for me. Um, it's more of a creative vision thing. I mean, I'm trying to think, like, like, like Sage leading it instead of Beast would obviously make them better, but not necessarily more interesting. You know, as much as, like, you're supposed to hate Beast, and I do, and that's drama, and that's tension, and that works pretty well right now. Um, I mean, I think like a lot of people, I'm, I'm pretty tired of Omega, um, of Quentin Quire just, like, sucking all the time. Not, not even like, oh, he's Omega level and he should be better. I don't even care about that so much as just, like, that beat has been hit to death. It has been hit to absolute death. Um, but, like, in the annual, you see, like, Domino's a really fun character to keep playing with. You know, she can do, like, the creative ways of using her luck powers tend to be pretty fascinating. So I got no problem with her staying on the team. Obviously, Wolverine is an X-Force mainstay. Throw uncanny X-Force. Um, I mean, I think you could, I think you could check on, you know, bring Deadpool into the equation to really spice things up. But the best thing X-Force could do is a creative turnover, for sure. Um, which, like, I'm not rooting for somebody to get fired so much as just, like, wrap up the story wherever this thing's going. Um, and, like, I feel like if, if he had to pick, I feel like Percy would want to be writing Wolverine and not also X-Force. So I just think it needs a new direction, a new a new change of pace. Um, what else we got? Apocalypse for Thanos. I'm seeing a lot of support for that. Uh, yeah, that would be incredible. I do love this idea. Um, great idea. Great idea. And Kieran Gold's writing Eternals and Immortal X-Men, so he has the means. He has the means and the power to make this happen. I mean, it would feel kind of... I don't know. On one hand, it's like... <clears throat> I don't feel like we're quite ready narratively for Apocalypse and, and the mutants of um, uh, Ament to come out and come back to Earth for this sort of thing. But having said that, I also want this era to move fast. Um, you know, like our good friends at Facebook. <laughs> move fast and break things. Uh, and and not stagnate like the Reign of X. So in that regard, it's kind of like, yeah, do it. Go for it. Let's see. Uh, and that could lead to some pretty cool stuff. So I love that idea. Well done. All right. Um, any others that we got to talk about? Do, 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 do. Discovered your channel recently and am a fan. We got here in the super chat. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Appreciate all of you coming in and talking comics with me every Wednesday. It is a lot of fun. So, all right. Unless there are any final questions here, uh, I will go ahead and say thanks for joining. Uh, I'm Dave. You can find all my stuff at Comic Book Herald on Twitter, Instagram, and of course, comicbookherald.com for my website. Of course, like, subscribe, um, you know, leave a comment here on the channel, and all that stuff helps me out and find new people. I appreciate that. Apocalypse Returning feels like something for a possible endgame. You know, I thought that, but it's like, because this era isn't really, like, I'm not really looking, I'm not really, like, waiting for an endgame, you know? And I don't know that anyone's planning for an endgame. We have no idea when that's going to be, so I'm kind of like, just do all the cool stuff. Just do all the cool stuff, and then when you've done that, do more cool stuff. <laughs> it's easy, right? Um, but it's kind of like, if you have an idea, do it. Don't sit on it. You know? I, I don't know. All my favorite media, all my favorite stuff all my favorite stories they have ideas to spare you know and and if you if the creative team if it feels like they're sitting on an idea 
It feels like they're sitting on a thing and they're holding it back. It just makes me think they don't have enough ideas. It just makes me think they don't have enough momentum. You know, I started reading, um, I've been reading more manga this year. And by more manga, I mean any manga, because I've really never read it before. And one of the picks that Zach and Charlotte had for me from the My Marvel This Year podcast was Death Note. So I started reading Death Note for the first time. And I've got quibbles here and there. Mostly I've been pretty captivated by it. Um, but one thing Death Note does is it builds a premise, and then it breaks that premise, and it says, here's a new idea, let's do something else. And it just keeps doing that. And it keeps escalating stakes, it keeps changing what you think the comic is going to be. Um, and I love that confidence. I love that momentum of, of just being like, oh, you thought the comic was this? It's this now. It's something else entirely. I love that. Okay? I want more of that from these X-Men comics. So I guess my final thing here is make X-Men like Death Note and um, have everyone just be debating like, <laughs> like every step of a thought process for 20 issues. No, not literally, but just like the momentum, the, the confidence, all of that is great, great stuff. Uh, I have not touched One Piece yet, except for I read the first three chapters or whatever, whatever's free on the Shonen Jump app. Here's the thing about starting One Piece. I do also want to read other comics for the next 30 years. <laughs> so my fear is if I start One Piece and then I try to read the 8 million volumes of it that exist, uh, I will simply never have the opportunity to read anything else. So I'm trying to read stuff that is more... It's not, not concise even, but just like there's a possibility that I might finish it. Um, so what did I read? I read Pluto, which went in my, my top 15, maybe top 10 favorite comics of all time. Pluto wants, I love that. That's, that's been my favorite by far. I read a little bit of Full Metal Alchemist, which was fun. I didn't fall head over heels for it. Um, I am reading Slam Dunk, basketball manga, which I've been having a blast with. That's like so fun for me. Uh, and I'm going to start reading Junji Ito for the first time. Got it sitting on my desk over there from the library. And uh, Haiku, I don't know how you say that word, but it's a volleyball manga that Zach from the My Marvel Sphere Podcast recommended is reading. So I'm going to check that out too. Okay, I'm seeing One Piece is the best. I believe it. I be People who've been reading One Piece, it's not like a, I'm not attacking it. I enjoyed the first three chapters. It's just like, that is as intimidating to me as... Uh, X-Men continuity is to everyone else, <laughs> right? Like that is, for me, One Piece, I look at that and I'm like, I'll in never in a million years, like like I'll get a taste of it at some point, you know? I'll do volumes of it at some point. But yeah, I'm kind of hopping around right now. Berserk, yeah, that's on the list. That's on the list. Listen, there's so much. I've read no manga. I've read no manga. I think before this year, I had read like a volume of Attack on Titan and I read it backwards for 20 pages, no joke. <laughs> I have a million, for, I was reading it digitally, so I feel like I get some credit there, but I was swiping the way you normally swipe, and it only occurred to me, because I was, I was like, man, this thing's like avant-garde, like this thing is weird, you know, um, I was swiping the wrong way for 20 pages, and then I realized like this story makes no sense, what is happening, and then I figured it out, then I figured it out, um, but I'd read that, I'd read some English adaptation stuff maybe, where it's not even read manga style, but hardly anything, and I'd watched almost all of the One Punch Man anime, which is probably the only anime I've ever watched, and I love that. <laughs> some I want to read some some One Punch Man at some point. Um, Mawa 2, the good Korean stuff, absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, I got a million things I got to read. But uh, but right now, it's it's Death Note, and it's Slam Dunk, and then I'm going to get... I, I, I need it to be a sunny day, all the windows open, all the lights on, and then I'll start my Junji Ito. 
Okay, then I will start it. So, but yeah, get your manga recs in. Uh, every casual Krakoa, I will very much appreciate that because seriously, I do want to check out a heck of a lot more of it. Uh, it's been fun too. And I'm not writing about it. I'm not doing stuff with it. So it's just like actually reading for pleasure. Imagine that. Imagine that. Uh, all right. Thanks everybody for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will see you all next week. Enjoy the comics.